Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Res is a national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Collins Land Services. When it comes to your disaster recovery and land management needs, you're looking for the perfect combination of competence, reliability, and affordability. That means you're looking for Collins Land Services. Check them out at www.collinslandservices.com. All right, let's get right to it. I'm fortunate to be joined today by David Sedlak. He's the author of a fascinating and illuminating new book called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Professor Sedlak is the Vice Chair for Graduate Studies for Civil and Environmental Engineering, as well as the Director of the Berkeley Water Center at the University of California, Berkeley. He received the Fulbright Specialist Award for New Zealand in 2019 and was elected to the National Academy of Engineering in 2016. If that's not enough for you, he's also written a previous book, an award-winning book, named Water 4.0. Professor Sedlak, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me too. And I'm looking forward to talking about the the book as well. But if you'll indulge me for a little bit, and if you listen to any of the episodes, you know, I like to spend a little bit of time getting to know the person I'm talking to better. And so you and I have not met before. So let's start with where you're from and what took you down the path toward a profession in teaching, researching, and writing about water resources. Okay, well, I grew up just outside of New York City and grew up at a time when the water issues that I ran across were related to concerns about toxic chemicals getting into the water supply. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a child of the era of contaminated water in places like Love Canal and, and Woburn, in Massachusetts mm-hmm. and, and the like when, when the Superfund site program was in its infancy. And, and all of this was new. And so my interest in toxic chemicals in the environment first took me to a few years of engineering consulting, cleaning up toxic waste sites in New Jersey, which had plenty of toxic waste <laughs> sites to clean up. And after working on that for a few years, I realized that most of the things that consultants did was study where the contaminants were, and they didn't really spend a lot of time cleaning them up. Hmm. And so when it was time to think about graduate school, I looked for a program where I could study ways to destroy contaminants rather than just watch them move around the environment. And so I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and got a degree in a field called water chemistry. And my interest at that time was in using hydroxyl radical, which is a strong oxidant that's produced when things like hydrogen peroxide and ozone decompose Mm -hmm. to break down PCBs. And that interest in, in breaking down chemicals got me off on a little bit of a tangent. And so after I finished my PhD, I spent a couple of years in Switzerland at the Swiss Federal Institute in Zurich, studying those same kinds of reactions occurring in the atmosphere, because those reactions are important to a lot of cycling of elements like sulfur and ozone and and metals in the environment. And so after that, I was coming back to the US and I, I, I realized that I wanted to keep doing research. And I ended up happily at UC Berkeley, where I joined the civil and environmental engineering program. And I wanted to keep working on some of those oxidation reactions. But I became aware very quickly that California was a lot different than New York, Hmm. where in New York, there's plenty of water and it's often not clean enough to drink. In California, there's a lot of water scarcity. And I became very intrigued by this issue of water scarcity and all the creative things that people have done to address water scarcity. And that attracted me to this new field in California of potable water recycling, where Mm -hmm. people were taking the treated wastewater from some of the large sewage treatment plants and cleaning it and putting it back into the water supply by injecting it into aquifers. Mm -hmm. And that was a place where my interest in oxidation chemistry and breaking down contaminants could find a role. And so I got involved in in research in, in that field. And because so many of the contaminants that we were looking at were, were new and unusual to people, things like 
pharmaceuticals and hormones and mm. exotic kinds of disinfection byproducts. I quickly found myself in front of public audiences explaining all of this complicated chemistry and engineering of water recycling. And that ultimately got me interested in the idea of writing books for general audiences. And so the first book, Water 4.0, was my attempt to explain some of the water recycling systems and some of the changes in urban water systems that were taking place mm -hmm. in Southern California as a result of water scarcity. And then, of course, this more recent book is, as we'll talk about today, an attempt to expand that to a broader suite of problems mm -hmm. and to think more globally. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about that potable reuse later because it's an issue that pops up here in Florida over the last several years or so. But let's start with where you are at the moment. And so what is the Berkeley Water Center and how long have you been the, the director there? The Berkeley Water Center is an effort by the University of California, Berkeley, where I'm a professor, and also some of our local partners like the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. So the, the National Lab just up the, the road is also a place where there's a lot of water research going on by these institutions to try to bring together the water community to go after the kinds of complex problems that we often find mm -hmm. in, in water systems. And so my my job as a director of the Water Center is to try to bring together teams of researchers to do multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary work on pressing water problems. Mm -hmm. I've been the director of the Water Center for about 15 years now, and I, I do it in addition to my, my day job as <laughs> a professor supervising graduate students and teaching classes at the university. Yeah, and so let's pile on author as well. And so now you've got your new book, Water for All. Talk about the premise of the book and then why you wrote it. Well, I wrote Water 4.0, the first book back in, in 2014, or rather I finished it in 2014. And in the intervening time between that book and when I started writing this new book in 2019, I, I learned a lot about water systems. And, hmm. and one of the things I learned is that the, the first book that I'd written, Water 4.0, was essentially a book about water scarcity for people living in cities in wealthy countries. Hmm. And when we talk about the global water crisis or the global water crises, as we'll, we'll talk about today, mm -hmm. it's a lot broader than that. And I recognized that there were issues related to water, whether it was water for agriculture, water for restoring ecosystems and protecting the environment, water for people in low and middle income countries. There were many other topics that I hadn't touched on. Mm -hmm. But when I started looking at those topics in more detail, I saw that Many of the challenges were similar to the ones I'd encountered in my own world, and, and also many of the solutions were similar. So I wanted to take the experiences that I had had and start applying them to some of these other kinds of water challenges. Yeah, and it, and it is a really fascinating book. And you do break the categories of water crises, as you, as you put it, into six parts. What are those crises, or at least a few of them, and why do you create those distinctions between the six? Well, first, I, I want to start by explaining why I think it's important to think about water in terms of crisis. Sure. And so, so certainly when it comes to change in our water systems, usually our water systems resist change as much as they can. And we, we try to make incremental fixes to our systems when we're having challenges with scarcity and contamination and other issues. But we reach a point eventually at which we realize that the approaches that we've been using are no longer feasible. And that's when big change comes during this period of crises. So I have identified six different crises that will bring about change in the future, and they're as follows. So the, the first crisis is the one that I mentioned before and the one where, mm -hmm. where I've spent most of my time and perhaps where most of your listeners work, and that is water for people who live in, in wealthy cities. Mm -hmm. And so those are the issues that when we, we run across issues of, say, water scarcity, those of us who are fortunate enough to live in the wealthy parts of the world, that would be like North America, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, et cetera. Mm -hmm. When we have a water scarcity problem, we can often apply 
technological solutions, whether that's desalination or water recycling or even building new dams and reservoirs. You know, we, we have the, the means to do that, and that's how we typically solved our water crises. But the rest of the world is not as fortunate, and that leads to the second and third water crises. The, the second water crisis is the crisis that I, I like to refer to as water for the many. Mm -hmm. And that is, there might be a billion people who live in high income countries, but there are more like 6 billion people who, who live somewhere in between in low and middle income countries. And many of those people live in cities where they have access to piped water. And that piped water comes into their homes. Maybe it doesn't have pressure or doesn't flow 24 hours a day, but they have a water supply. Mm -hmm. And when those places face water scarcity, they can't necessarily buy their way out with a high-tech solution. And their, their water systems and institutions struggle to raise enough revenue to fix the problems. And so they're often reliant on international development agencies like the World Bank and, and others to mm -hmm. help them build their way out of crisis. And then the third water crisis is the crisis facing people who are unconnected. So in the world, there are somewhere around a billion people who don't have access to an improved water supply. And that means that they either have to walk great distances and, and haul that water home using precious time and, and resources, or they draw their water from an open well or, or a river or a lake. And those are the people that we think of when we think of global water crisis being tied to abject poverty. Mm -hmm. And so they're the people who struggle to obtain water and don't have the, the, the luxury of relying upon a piped water supply in their homes. The fourth water crisis is the crisis of water that's not safe to drink. And I broke that apart from the other three because there's some commonalities so that if your water is contaminated with arsenic, for example, you might be someone who lives in a low-income country like Bangladesh, but you also might live in a wealthy country like the U.S. There mm. are plenty of people living in the U.S. who have groundwater wells that are contaminated with geogenic elements like arsenic, and they struggle with the same types of problems that people in Bangladesh who have arsenic in their groundwater struggle with. We don't have great ways to remove those contaminants at the household scale with a, a well. And likewise, many people have water supplies that are contaminated with synthetic organic chemicals like the, the PFAS chemicals that we hear mm -hmm. so much about these days, those don't just affect people living in wealthy countries. They affect people who live anywhere near industries. And then the fifth water crisis is the crisis of not having enough water to grow food. So certainly if you don't have enough water, you can't grow food. And the most obvious thing that people first think about is food security and, and, and the food supply. Mm -hmm. But not having enough water can also lead to an economic crisis for people who live in rural and, and agricultural areas. And so figuring out how to avoid and solve water crises facing agriculture is important not only to the food supply, but to the vitality of our rural communities. Mm -hmm. And the final water crisis is the crisis of water for the environment. And that's one of both scarcity and contamination. So, you know, in Florida, you're well aware of the impacts of nutrient pollution causing algal blooms and, and all kinds of other ecological problems. There are also problems of water scarcity caused by diverting water supplies and drying up rivers and, and lakes by, by using too much of the water. And that's a crisis that, that sneaks up on people and often the environment has fewer advocates. And so it can reach a, a, a point where ecosystems and, and livelihoods of people who rely on those ecosystems are threatened. So those are, right. are six crises. And, and I find that breaking down water challenges into those different crises is helpful because the institutions that are often responsible for managing those crises are similar and have similar characteristics. Let's take a quick break to talk about my friends at Collins Land Services. When I was at the Northwest Florida Water Management District in the wake of Hurricane Michael, the devastation to tens of thousands of acres of property the agency manages in the path of that storm was beyond belief. But thanks to the governor and legislature, our dedicated and professional staff, and our equally dedicated partners like Collins Land Services, we were able to begin the long, hard road to recovery. Collins Land Services made the forestry recovery process easier 
because they embrace the three legs of the stool one must possess to work effectively with me. Competency, reliability, and affordability. Collins is an American-owned and veteran-operated business that has a long resume of successful projects throughout Florida that go well beyond ordinary forestry services. Their experience with stormwater and other surface water maintenance, right-of-way services of all kinds, and they've proven their value with commercial and even residential clients as well. Get rid of the absentee contractors, cost overruns, and substandard performances. Contact Collins Land Services to find out how they can help solve your property challenges today. You can find them at www.collinslandservices.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting way of, of categorizing them and, and kind of organizing your, your thoughts on it. Let me poke around inside the book a bit because there are a few things that were, you know, maybe not new terms, but, but some of them ideas that are new to me or at least maybe were framed in, in, in a new way. Let me start with the great acceleration because you talk about it, you know, a fair amount in there. What is the great acceleration? When did it happen? And how does that fit into these crises? Well, some of your listeners might have heard the term the Anthropocene, and in some ways, the uh, the Great Acceleration and the Anthropocene are synonymous. That is, in the period of the second half of the 20th century, a combination of political and social factors unleashed a period of great growth. So starting in the second half of the 20th century, we see an acceleration in economic activity, We see growth in population due in part to that economic growth, but also to improvements in in medicine and health. And that results in great changes around the world. People migrate to cities. Resources start to get depleted. Politics realigns itself. But I think for the purposes of water, we see a period of building of dams and reservoirs mm-hmm. and groundwater wells and water projects that often deplete water supplies. And we see a period of growth in agriculture. Sometimes we refer to it as the, the Green Revolution, where we see a lot more irrigated agriculture and we see a lot more nutrient pollution from the, the growth in agricultural activity. And so those are the, the great acceleration changed the the way the world looks, but it also changed the way that water was used and managed worldwide. Certainly. And you you definitely get into a lot of those challenges that that has created over time. And I want to, it's like one of the things I really like about the the book is a lot of people are really good at talking about things that are wrong and really putting their their finger on it, or maybe they don't really put their finger on it. They get in the the neighborhood and that's good enough, but that's it. And and the thing I liked about yours that was different was that for each one of those challenges, you offer solutions. And so I want to poke a little bit at, at a few of these, your, your kind of low to middle range countries and hit on an item or two. And, and maybe you can, you can shed a little bit more light on that for, for listeners, because you talk about Mexico City as a portrait of that kind of lower middle income community dealing with water challenges, among other things. I think you noted, I think it was a leakage loss of about 40%. And that's an incredible number. I mean, numbers like that here would cause a scandal. Can you talk more about those challenges there? Sure. And this is a common problem worldwide. We've, we've been pretty good in our low and middle income countries. Every, every Just about every city on earth has a potable water supply. Maybe you wouldn't drink it without boiling it, but mm-hmm. everyone has distribution systems and pipes and the utilities responsible for those distribution systems and pipes have a hard time collecting revenue from their customers. And so anyone who's worked in the municipal water sector here in the U.S. knows how expensive it is to maintain those distribution systems and how much time and effort is spent in repairing leaking pipes. So now imagine doing that, but you're collecting much less revenue because many of your customers are unable to pay for the water and the government is not sending you subsidies or or underwriting your activities. And so you're just a lot more limited in what you can do. And so many utilities in low and middle income countries have water loss rates on the order of 20, 30, 40%. And I think Mexico City is probably also challenged by their geology, they're, you know, they're seismically active Mm. and, and, and there are probably some aspects of this land subsidence that's taken place there that have contributed to the state of their distribution systems. 
what are some of the solutions there? I mean, money is almost always the solution, right? And it's like, but what would David Sedlak say about how to go about undoing that type of loss? Because if you're if, if it continues to grow, you obviously the water needs to be able to meet the needs of of many more people, probably millions. And so, how do you how do you go about unraveling that? Well, maybe for Mexico City, it's it's not as bad as it seems because mm-hmm. they 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 do use the, the groundwater within sure. the city, so they're they're recharging their own basin. But that's not true everywhere. Right. There are some examples around the world, like in Cambodia. I think it's Phnom Penh. The manager who took over the utility got, you know, inherited a system where they were seeing leaks in, in that that range, mm-hmm. and just through management prowess and and not not taking loans to keep building more water supply projects, but but encouraging spending on maintaining the distribution system and getting the revenue collection back mm-hmm. together, they were able to drop that precipitously. So a lot of people in the water field look to some of those case studies where people have been able to turn around the finances and, and the maintenance of systems in, in low and middle income countries. But there is not an easy path out in, in many of these places because, again, the public is not as wealthy and, and you can't squeeze money out of people who don't have it. And right. if you push too hard, you'll see illicit connections and things like that. So, And politicians also don't want to be responsible for raising water rates to levels that are unaffordable. And sure. so there has been some progress that's made in, in these situations. You know, in the book, I talk a little about the privatization movement mm-hmm. in, in the world, which was very controversial about 25 or 30 years ago when some of the multinationals came in and formed public-private partnerships with state water utilities with the promise that they were going to use their, you know, professional talents and and their 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 knowledge of systems to to make things work better and that was politically very threatening and so we hear about some of the water wars in latin america and some Mm -hmm. of the political problems and you know there's a mixed record there there are a few cases where you can see that that privatization did lead to better performance in municipal water systems but in, in my estimation the things that that it maybe did a better job of is it it kind of jarred the municipal water sector to, to realize that that politicians could look for a different way to supply water if they didn't get their act together. Mm-hmm. So you, you see kind of a professionalization of municipal water suppliers and, and that privatization has kind of receded. So you don't see as much of a push towards privatization. And some of the private companies that were pushing privatization got burned by some of the projects they were involved in. And so they're pushing it a little less aggressively. Uh-huh. And and so as a result, the global development banks are, are not insisting on it the same way. So there has been some improvement in terms of just, I guess, managerial prowess mm-hmm. in, in middle-income countries. And there have been some smart investments by development agencies. But I think the thing that people still haven't quite figured out is how to assure that that water equity is achieved because mm-hmm. in in any like middle income country you have pockets of very wealthy people and then you have areas of the city with poor people and sometimes informal settlements and so it's pretty easy to build a water utility that serves only the wealthy people but mm-hmm. when you want to serve everyone in the in the community you're expanding the water supply into places where folks don't have the means of paying. And so it, it's a really challenging thing to do well. It's gradual progress, but I can't say it's a solved problem. Yeah. And it's, it, that's one of the, the things that was kind of a eye opener for me is it, what you just mentioned, which is that kind of juxtaposition between rich people in, you know, low and middle income countries. And then the cost of getting water of potable water like i think you mentioned india as an example of the cost relative to income for these people to to be able to get usable water right and here we talk about like four percent of revenue being being unacceptable for a water utility bill but there you know if someone's buying bottled water or buying tanker truck water it could be a much larger fraction of their their income and so that's an issue that has to be resolved there's also like a really big issue that I, I, I get into in the book a little bit, and that is the rate at which cities are growing today 
in low and middle income countries. So like, for example, in the 15 largest, fastest growing cities in the world right now are all in sub-Saharan Africa, Hmm. and they're all doubling at a rate of every 15 years. And to put that into perspective, during the second half of the 20th century, the population of Los Angeles doubled every 30 years. Mm. And in the 19th century, the population of London doubled every 40 years. And so if you're trying to provide a water supply in one of these cities, you have to accept that the population's doubling every 15 years. That means you have to be building pretty quickly. And so one of the interesting opportunities that I think may be out there is that these rapidly growing cities may choose a different path instead of like a real centralized water supply they may look for less more of a decentralized view where Mm. different parts of the city provide their own water and sometimes even source their own water and recycle their own water at a a local or district scale And, and we see that happening for example in bangalore in india where new housing complexes are required to put in their own wastewater treatment and water recycling systems. I find it interesting, and you tell me where I'm wrong here. You don't strike me in any way, you know, both in watching your your TED Talk, which, by the way, is really good, or your book, you don't strike me as a Malthusian here. You, It seems like you take things as they are and say, okay, this is what we have to do. Am I capturing that right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think every water challenge has a solution and and I, I take the view that we're going to muddle through the best we can and 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 we're not bubbling along to a, a zombie apocalypse or, or something <laughs> like what you what you read in like that that the science fiction book, The Water Knife. I mean, you know, we're gonna we're gonna muddle along and I think that if we are smart about it, we can minimize suffering and we can protect the environment and human health along the way and, and help our communities grow. Let me bring it closer to home. What has the great acceleration meant for places like the United States? Well, you know, we had this period in the second half of the 20th century where Mm. every generation could be assured that they would probably have more affluence than the one that preceded them. So, Mm. you know, we're at this point where the United States is getting built out. The economies like stabilizing populations are stabilizing. And if we didn't have immigration, we'd, we'd probably be flat or we'd be facing the situation that they have in Japan of declining population. So mm. we've been through the great acceleration. It's made us wealthy and it's developed our, our landscape. So our, our cities are largely built out. I mean, we have suburbs growing and the like. We've improved our agricultural land. We've put in irrigation systems. Uh, we've done a lot of, of great things. And now the, the challenge, I think, going forward is the water crises in the United States are not going to be driven so much by the great acceleration as by climate change. Hmm. And now that we're done accelerating, in some point in the future, we'll have to be thinking about the the, the, the other side of that, the deceleration as population levels out and possibly even starts to decline. But I think I think that's still decades away. So for us, we've accelerated, we've, we've hit this point, we've, we've built out much of the country, maybe there's still migration to the Sun Belt and to, to, to the Southeast, but mm-hmm. we've been through it. And now the real challenge is what climate change means to our, our water resources. Yeah, and I think that's a really good a really good point and issue that you you get into. I, I guess maybe I'm thinking more of this. You you make it over the peak of that acceleration, and now on the on the downslope on issue. And I'm thinking most specifically issues like hydroelectric power production, things like that, where you look at folks trying to figure out how to undo some of the technologies and structures and infrastructure we've created to create power, to give water to places that didn't have before. I'm thinking specifically, you know, out West, but you've got the Klamath River dams that are being torn down. I think there are down now, at least two of them, and they're restoring the the river there. It seems like you're of two voices in the book where you see the continued necessity of dams depending on the situation. So I guess what I'm asking is, are we at the the end of kind of the age of hydroelectric power in terms of its water use, or should we be? Well, we're 
we're certainly past peak dam. Mm-hmm. So if in the book, I have a figure that shows dam building worldwide. And, and what you can see is that we the, the rate of, of dam building started to decelerate in the 1970s. And we're at the point where worldwide, we're barely building any dams. I mean, there's some exceptions that you can see in some high profile controversial dams like like in, in China and in, mm-hmm. in Egypt. But um, we, we don't build dams anymore. I think the question in front of us is, what do we do with the dams we built? Mm-hmm. And there are really two answers to that. There are some dams that are obsolete, that, that no longer serve a very important purpose, and they have major impacts on ecosystems and they're going to need to come down Mm -hmm. and so the Klamath is an example of one of the larger dams that needs to come down and the reason it needed to come down is that it wasn't producing a lot of hydroelectric power and when it was going to be relicensed it was going to have to put in fishways or fish passage Mm -hmm. structures and that would have been quite expensive and so the the owner of that dam saw the writing on the wall and cut a deal with the state and and now they're being taken down to restore the native american fishery up there and Mm -hmm. and that that's a good thing and we had a dam in the olympic national park that came down a few years before that but when these large dams come down they're not just a question of knocking down a dam there's there's uh, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of restoration work and planning that has to go into it right so the large dams probably aren't going to come down that much. It's these small earthen dams and these these diversion structures and ponds that people built 100 or 150 years ago that don't make sense anymore. Hmm. There's another group of dams that I can't imagine that we're going to get rid of anytime soon because they're protecting our cities from flooding. Mm-hmm. They're important sources of hydroelectric power, and we've come to rely upon them for water supply and irrigation. And these dams are going to need attention. I think many of them are under under maintained or, or need need some major restoration and 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 attention, especially in light of a shifting climate. Mm-hmm. So when we see these more extreme storms like we're experiencing out west, or when we see this transition from snowfall to rainfall in the winter as the climate warms, we're going to have to think about how to operate those dams differently and and also perhaps even reinforce them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's a set of dams that are large dams that are silting in. And, you know, we should recognize that many dams were built with the idea that they wouldn't be forever and that they would eventually undergo the process of siltation. And then we have the challenge of how to manage them going mm-hmm. into the future. Do we do we try to remove that that accumulated material? It's often nearly impossible. Or do we run them as run of the river dams and mm. change the way they operate? And so there's an interesting future for dams, and it, it's it's already starting to play out in the West. But I think it's true just about everywhere. When when most of the dams in the world are 50 or 100, and soon we'll have 150 year old dams, it's a good time to reinvestigate them. But we're we're always going to have dams. And one of the the solutions that you offer is the theme of conservation over construction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's important. And, and I think as, as someone who who is fascinated by technology and, and likes to work in it, to, to first, before thinking about any kind of technological solution for water scarcity issues, to think about whether there's a conservation solution or a, a policy solution that can do it. Because when we conserve, we we often have the cheapest, most environmentally benign way of solving a water crisis. And so we've done amazing things in the last 50 years in our municipal water systems through conservation. In fact, in, mm-hmm. in many of the cities in the US, we use the same amount of water that we used 50 years ago, even though the populations have often doubled. And so that's true in Los Angeles, that's true in Seattle, that's true in many places where we've been able to change out appliances like like toilets and washing machines and dishwashers and, and put in models that conserve a lot more water. And we're seeing that happen with outdoor landscaping too, where it's not just a question of choosing between a lawn and and concrete, but you can you can irrigate more effectively. Hmm. Also, when it comes to conservation, 
we've made tremendous strides in agricultural irrigation where, you know, 50 or 75 years ago, most irrigation was surface irrigation or flood irrigation. Mm -hmm. And today in the Western United States, most irrigation is done either with sprinklers or with micro drip. And that's much more crop per drop that, that we're able to achieve. So conservation is often the first place to look. And over the past 50 or 70 years, it's been the place where we've had the greatest wins and I think the question for us with respect to conservation is when do we run out of runway? Hmm. Like how far can you go in terms of household water use and how far can you go in terms of efficient agricultural irrigation? And mm-hmm. in some places around the world, we may be getting close, but in most of the world, we still have a lot more conservation that we can do. And it will often be the cheapest and best way to go. Let's take a minute to talk about my friends at Resource Environmental Solutions. Our state presents unique challenges with its diverse ecosystems, landscapes, and the many demands on its natural resources. That's why RES uses an innovative approach and creative solutions to help municipalities, agencies, and local water resource groups navigate the ever-changing landscape of environmental regulations in Florida and throughout the country. RES actively restores habitats, hydrological regimes, and ecosystem functions across Florida, from the Panhandle to the Heartland to the Florida Keys and everywhere in between. They focus on restoring floodplains and wetlands and improving water quality, which benefits a wide array of species that call Florida home. With an unwavering commitment to Florida's unique ecological communities, RES upholds long-term stewardship practices, guaranteeing sustainable outcomes that endure. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida's communities and the environmental challenges they face by visiting www. Dot R-E-S dot U-S. All right, now back to the conversation. I think I brought up Mexico City earlier in terms of leakage, just to, I think to juxtapose it against the United States. Sometimes I consider water loss through leakage a conservation issue, or maybe it's just an efficient infrastructure issue. Are we doing enough to prevent water loss here in the United States? Well, I think that with respect to water loss, there's there's an optimum. I mean, like you can go you can go down to one percent mm-hmm. water loss. Like I, I think Singapore, for example, is probably close to that. And wow. there it's like it's a question of national security and national pride mm-hmm. that that they want their system to be tight. But in terms of economic efficiency, that's probably not the most efficient way to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there it's just a, a question of, of trade off. So I presume that for every city, when you think about water loss, you have to compare what you would spend to get the return on water loss versus how you could use that money for conservation, other conservation methods, mechanisms, or even new water supply. So mm-hmm. if getting from 5% to 1% water loss is an astronomical amount of money, you're much better off using that to like subsidize people to transform their lawns into into more water-efficient landscaping, for example. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There are a few challenges that you dive into in Water for All related to salt. And I'd like you to get to the coastal and inland desal issue in a minute. But first, can you talk about the chapter called A Better Salt Machine? Because there are some significant challenges related to salt salinization out west and elsewhere in the world. And in a state like Florida, we're using less water in an efficient matter means sustained crop yields. The need for more water flushing on farmland in places, I think you talk about the Joaquin Valley, may seem counterintuitive to some, and by some I mean me. Can you talk me through that that problem, that challenge there? And then we can jump back to the coastal desal and where we are there. Sure. So, you know, Salinization and water logging, these are the, the, the twin challenges of irrigated agriculture in, in arid climates. Mm-hmm. And that is that as you get more and more efficient in how you apply water, you leave behind salts in the soil horizon mm-hmm. and, and they accumulate. And so if you flood irrigate and you flush the system with lots of water, when the plants undergo evapotranspiration and when water evaporates from the surface, the salts get left behind. And so 
if you flush with enough water, you can drive those salts into the groundwater or you can have them uh, flow out with the tailwater from irrigation. So in the old days, when much of the irrigation was surface irrigation, the salts got washed away and no one paid much attention mm -hmm. to where they went. They usually went somewhere downstream and in some cases caused a, a problem there, but they, they, they left the farmland. But as we've become more conscious about the amount of water that we apply, we often don't flush those salts out and they can accumulate in the soil horizon. And especially when salts like, like sodium and chloride and boron accumulate in the soil, it can cut crop productivity. And so we can only go so far with respect to efficient irrigation. At some point, we have to come back and manage the salts. And so, you know, in, in the chapter on a better salt machine, I was getting into this challenge that now we have increasingly efficient desalination systems, not just reverse osmosis, but, you know, technologies like capacitive deionization or, mm. or EDR or something like that, where it's relatively inexpensive to take salt out of water. And when we look at salty groundwater, brackish groundwater, it might only have 1,500 or 2,000 milligrams per liter of total dissolved solids, which means that you just have to take 50 or 75% of the salt out, and now you can use it for, for agriculture. And so that's not that expensive and it's starting to re reach a point where it might even someday be within the reach of, of farmers looking for water but if we use those desalination technologies we're going to produce a brine waste a concentrate mm -hmm. and we can't just release that into rivers because then we just create a new kind of salt pollution problem right and so Historically, people have, have used salt evaporation ponds, and in, in the arid west, an evaporation pond will allow the water to evaporate. It might not be that effective in a place like Florida where you mm -hmm. get more rain, but a dry, sunny, hot place like, like Arizona or something like that, they can be reasonably effective. But it turns out that evaporation ponds are actually relatively expensive when you consider all the infrastructure, and they, they can't go everywhere. And so industry uses a process called zero liquid discharge or near zero liquid discharge, where they use various types of concentrators and crystallizers to take that brine down to a solid salt material, which in theory could go into a landfill or maybe you could reclaim valuable materials from it. But that is still quite expensive and it's a little bit of out of reach. Hmm. And so, you know, what we've been involved in with some of our own research and, and, and also what a lot of the, the effort is going into in, in, in the R&D community is finding ways to drop the cost of those zero liquid discharge and, and salt concentration techniques. And if we can, I think we might unlock a vast supply of water which will be useful for municipalities inland and, and perhaps even someday for industry and agriculture. In the, the chapter, I think I'll probably get the name wrong. I want to say Inland Brine Line. Is that is that am I getting that right? Uh, the, the Inland the Inland Empire Brine Line. Yeah. Right. And and that moves that brine from I think you said over 100 kilometers all the way to, I assume, the Pacific Ocean. And I, and I guess maybe I mentioned that because it's part and parcel of the challenge that that everyone has had in terms of dealing with desalination, especially on the coast. And that's how you know, how do you get that brine back in an ecosystem without causing damage. What's the future of things like the brine line? Because I saw you, someone who thought about or maybe suggested doing several dozen of those and, you know, and connecting them in, you know, together as a network and moving it to the, to the coast. Is that realistic in the future? Well, the, the, the people who came up with the idea of putting that brine line in, this is the Inland Empire, the area mm -hmm. where Riverside, California, and, and, and San Bernardino are now. They had this idea in the 1970s, and that's when, when it was first hatched, and they managed to make it a reality, this 120-kilometer-long brine line. And it, it's been a lifeline to those communities because they can dispose of their desalination brines. But most places, it, it really is economically infeasible. It just becomes very expensive very quickly. And you have to have the right place to dispose of the brine. You can't put it into a shallow estuary or bay because right. the brine often is contaminated with toxic metals or oxyanions or nutrients. 
And so I, I doubt that we'll see a lot of new brine lines being built. Uh, there may be some places where strategically they, they make sense, mm-hmm. but mostly we're going to have to think about ways of managing the salt brines that we produce within the basin where they're generated. Well, then let's move to the other kind of brine line of source, except it's right there on, on the coast, and that's coastal desalination. How are the costs doing today? When they when we started, it was really expensive, and it got well, just kind of expensive. Where are we now in that technology? Wealthy cities that have experienced water scarcity for a long time, seawater desalination often turns out to be the least expensive next option. Hmm. So that's certainly like it's reaching that point in in Southern California, it's reaching that point in places like like Australia, like in Perth, and it's reaching it's reached that point in in Israel. There there are places around the world where it's the the next most feasible source of water, but it, it you're right, it's certainly not cheap. It's become a lot more energy efficient. It's it's approaching the theoretical optimal place, like mm. you know, like it, it's not going to get much less energy efficient, but it's already in terms of its energy footprint, or it, it, it's comparable to what in California and in Arizona, the energy used to pump water up and over the mountains to get them into cities. So in California, you have to pump water from the Central Valley up over the Tehachapi Mountains to get it into Los Angeles. Mm. And in Phoenix, you have to go over a mountain range to get from the Colorado River through the Central Arizona project. And that's about the same amount of energy as it takes to desalinate the seawater mm. at the coast. Interesting. So in terms of energy, it's it's no longer the same kind of energy hog it used to be. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like capital costs and operating costs, a lot of the challenge is in financing and and design and regulations. And so, for example, building desalination plants in a place like Israel or in, in some parts of Asia can be half the cost of at least the water that's provided is about half the cost of what it is in the U.S. because mm. it's harder to to finance and operate and 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 build projects. And so, it's it is where it is. I think the the plant in Tampa, the plant in Carlsbad, and in, in San Diego, that's kind of as about as good as it's going to get for mm. a while. I want to look at some of the similar kind of drawbacks, or maybe just as a theme drawback to to something you mentioned pretty early on, that's potable reuse of wastewater or the irrigation of crops with treated wastewater. And you talk about that in the book. How confident are you in the innovator's ability to mitigate those risks, the the other things that get into that water that are hard to pull out, like the pharmaceuticals? So, you know, we've, we've come a long way with this discussion of, of, of potable water reuse and and both the microbial risks and also the chemical risks. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., we've really put this under a microscope with studies by the national academies and, 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 and different states and the research community. And maybe the place, the way to look at potable water reuse is comparing it to the safety of our other potable water supplies. Mm-hmm. Now, we rely upon rivers where there are upstream cities discharging their wastewater and their industrial waste and their agricultural runoff. Mm -hmm. We rely upon groundwater aquifers, oftentimes located in areas that are not pristine or are located in areas where there are naturally occurring elements that can contaminate them. In many cases, I think we should probably have more confidence in our our, our recycled water than, than we have in some of our surface water supplies and groundwater supplies. So I think, you know, the question of whether there could ever be something in that recycled water that poses a risk is that that will always have to be vigilant. But sometimes I like to flip it around and say, maybe it's an excuse to be a little bit more vigilant about these drinking water supplies that we often take for granted. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's actually a, a really great point. I'm going to ask a question and I ask it of all, all my guests. I think I know the answer because your whole book kind of screams it. But are you optimistic about the future of water resources, not just in the United States, but but around the world? So, you know, as as a teacher, I often find myself teaching about topics that can be hard for people to think about, like mm-hmm. like climate change and, and kind of global development. Mm-hmm. And, and I often find myself in this situation that 
you don't want to leave people with the sense that that the world is hopeless. So your first inclination is to be to be positive. And I remember reading something that Václav Havel once wrote where someone asked him a similar kind of question and he said he was hopeful. Mm. That is optimistic means you think everything's going to work out just fine and you might as well go on doing what you're doing. Hopeful means that you couldn't imagine doing anything other than trying to solve the problems and that you have some confidence in the creative energies of of humanity to to solve problems because you see how good we've done at solving problems in the past. Hmm. I think that's a good point. And I think that's probably a pretty decent place for us to end on. The book, again, is called Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. When and where can folks find your book? Well, the book is out now. It's it's available on all the, the, the major commercial platforms. So you can, you can buy it from the publisher, Yale Press, directly. You can buy it from Amazon or, or some other internet source. But I encourage you, if, if possible, to buy it from a local bookstore. I, I found it in a number of, of bookstores already. So hopefully it's there. You heard him, folks. It's a great book. I definitely recommend that you go out and buy it. I definitely got a lot out of it. David Sedlak, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your work with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the discussion. Me too. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on LinkedIn and Instagram at FLWaterPod, and you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Swarn for making the best of what he had to work with, and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bow Spring from the Bow Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check the band out live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State or around the world. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. 